0: Let us pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for giving us this time together today, Lord. Thank you for such a wonderful time uh, that we've had so far of worshiping you together. Thank you for speaking us to us through your word. Lord, as we continue this journey through church history and art history, please bless our hearts and minds uh, with what you would have us know. In Christ's name, amen. I'm also going to start us uh, for the past couple of weeks, a little piece of the prayer book. Since we, were, since we are diving into the Middle Ages today, I thought I would give us a little prayer that is in our current prayer book. It is, uh, it is in the Collects and Occasional Prayers, number 89, by Anselm of Canterbury. He was one of the uh, medieval archbishops of Canterbury. It goes like this. Teach me to seek you, and as I seek you, show yourself to me. For I cannot seek you unless you show me how. And I will never find you unless you show yourself to me. Let me seek you by desiring you. And desire you by seeking you. Let me find you by loving you. And love you in finding you. Amen. So today we are going to travel all the way from, uh, from the eastern uh, edge of the Roman Empire and, Byzant- and uh, what eventually became the Byzantine Empire all the way to the other side of Europe. <laughs> uh, and so uh, we will be primarily in, uh, in England, Scotland, Ireland, uh, and Wales. We talked about a lot of the iconography last time that, that we saw developing in Christian art. Some of, some of the things we'll see today uh, carry forth some of that same iconography even though it's in a totally different part of the world. Other things are are very exclusively to are very exclusive to uh, to this uh, to the British Isles, basically. Some of those things are here. So what you will see, uh, especially in uh, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. Uh, not as much England, uh, though there are areas, um, is the Celtic knot, uh, the triquetra, and of course the Celtic cross. Uh, these are patterns that pre-exist, well, the, uh, the Celtic knot and the triquetra are patterns that pre-exist Christianity. We see we see them existing in art from those areas long before Christianity existed there. However, they are they are brought into the art uh, and monuments of Christianity. And so, what uh, what we think uh, symbolize things like unity, connectedness, eventually. Uh, Come, come to have uh, meanings brought in on them. Just, just like in the um, in the uh, Roman Empire, how we saw the shepherd image, which had pre-existed, but it was infused with new meaning uh, by by the Christians. Mm-hmm. So that happens. With the Celtic Christians as well, as as um, as uh, Christianity travels there. Uh, a little bit of background from this is actually from the preface to our prayer book. The early Christian mission in the British Isles was an encounter with pagan tribes and societies. Converts banded together, and in, the con- and in this context, communities of common prayer, learning, and Christ-like service emerged, living under agreed rules. Thus, monasteries became centers of the evangelization of this remote region of the Roman Empire and ever more so as the empire disintegrated. Early heroes and heroines leading such communities bore names that are still remembered and celebrated. Names like Patrick, Bridget, David, Columba, Cuthbert, and Hilda. Haphazardly and without a centralized hierarchy or authority, what emerged in Britain by God's grace was a church that saw herself in each of her local manifestations as part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, culturally attuned and missionally adaptive, but ever committed to and always propagating the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now with the... Um, with some of the, this imagery that, that we see here, the triquetra, uh, particularly, uh, we think, became associated with the Trinity. We don't have a lot of writing on that. We don't actually have a ton of writing as to how these symbols became incorporated into, into the Christian art of those areas. Um, However, uh, reading back on it, it seems like that is the case. Uh, with the Celtic cross, uh, we have, we have uh, a development from what, what was seen in the Roman Empire as a haloed cross. So, so the circle behind the cross or fusing the cross is typically thought of as a halo. Now, uh, the, the, uh, the Celtic pagan culture of the time did have also a sun symbol that, that was a circle with a cross within it. So you had these two things, these Roman influences and these, uh, these Celtic pagan influences coming together coming together, uh, and also something else brought in. It was changed to a Roman cross, you know, with the the longer bottom section, a T-shaped cross. As these things developed over time, uh, so this uh, this is across cross in Ireland. This is across in Scotland. Um, now this one just has a little bit of writing on it. This has a whole story told within it. Um, and we begin to see this as, as we see monuments erected at places of pilgrimage. Uh, you, uh, you see these crosses... And sometimes you see crosses uh, that that have a whole story told within the imagery along the cross. But a big cultural force in this time, uh, as as um, as Christianity began to spread were the Abbeys. From the uh, uh, Lion Companion to Christian Art, which, by the way, if you're ever going to get one book on the history of Christian artwork, uh, the, the Lion Companion to Christian Art, it's huge. It's, 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 it's weighty, but it's amazing. <laughs> uh, uh, but Michelle Brown... Says, a significant force in the conversion of the of the English was Ireland, operating through monasteries such as Iona and Lindisfarne, founded by the Irish Saint Columba and his followers. Ireland had received Christianity during the fifth century, when Palladius was sent from Rome in four thirty one as bishop to those who already believed. And Saint Patrick lost, launched his mission from the Romano-British Church. Irish uh, Irish scribes developed decorated initials uh, in their writing, uh, and they uh, they distinguished one script, a larger script, uh, for scripture, and and more calligraphy like minuscule scripts for less formal work. They also introduce spaces between words, uh, systematic punctuation to clarify legibility and meaning, all sorts of other things. And suddenly we start getting writing uh, from these abbeys that is absolutely beautiful. Uh, and it gets more and more elaborate. With illustrations, and the Eastern Church had some illustrated manuscripts, some illuminated manuscripts. Mm-hmm. But, but in the abbeys that we see popping up in Ireland, and then, um, and then uh, Scotland and Northern England, these these monks bring it to a new level. So what we have here, this is uh, this is the Lindisfarne Gospels. Uh, these are just three pages from it. Um, uh, it's from Lindisfarne. It's Northumbria. That's uh, no, that's in northern England, um, and we think this was made around seven ten, seven twenty, A.D. Uh, and Lindisfarne had been founded by monks from Iona Abbey um, uh, and this was actually, and this is a whole book of the gospels I've, I've seen a copy of it, uh, facsimile and it's about this thick and we think it was made in about a ten year period of time by one person uh, uh, probably going to mispronounce this. I think his name was Bishop Adferth. Uh And it was probably made uh, for the shrine of St. Cuthbert at Lindisfarne. Cuthbert was a huge influence in, in the formation of the abbeys during that period of time. A uh, few things that you will see in this... This center thing is called a key row page. Again, a key row uh, that we've talked about. Uh, So you see the X formation. Uh, That that would be the key or chi. Uh, And this P formation over here would be the row. This is from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And over here, we see the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. How do we know this is from the Gospel of Mark? It's got the lion. So, so this, uh, yeah, so this symbolism uh, is carrying all across the empire, all the way from the furthest reaches in Constantinople, all the way to the British Isles. The most famous of the illuminated illuminated manuscripts, however, was made at Iona itself. This is the Book of Kells. Now, the the Book of Kells has been stored at, well, was kept for centuries at Kells, uh, the Abbey of Kells, uh, which is in Ireland, even, even though it was probably made at Iona. Uh, fun fact, there's a great little animated movie <laughs> uh, called The Secret of Kells. It's a largely fictionalized uh, retelling of the making of the Book of Kells. Uh, but, but the circumstances are based, in fact, about how the abbeys operated at, in that period of time and, and the struggle against the Vikings and, and everything that kind of uh, were the circumstances in which a book like the Book of Kells and other illuminated manuscripts were being made. And also some speculation on the process of how these things were made because I don't know how well you can see it from here, but the details are immaculate. Uh, uh, You would think you need a magnifying glass to to see how these patterns are being made. You see a lot of... uh, a lot of patterns we associate with Celtic art in the Book of Kells. Over on the far side is the key row page from the Book of Kells. So you start seeing a lot of the imagery between these books of the Gospels and other things are similar. But within And I wish you could see the circles clearer, but there are circles within circles, and within those small circles are little patterns, and it almost comes alive as you look at it. Meanwhile, uh, you see a picture uh, here of Jesus, Jesus uh, as Christ triumphant again, and What we see, we see Jesus in blue and red. So you're seeing the same color schemes that we've seen in other artwork uh, of Jesus from the other side of the empire. Uh, Now, he has quite the uh, luscious head of hair in this, this one. That's a little different. But he's also holding a book of the Gospels again which is kind of meta, considering it's in the book of the Gospels. But I'll let that be. <laughs> now, the book of Kells, as opposed to the, the uh, Lindisfarne Gospels, was made by a team of artist scribes. It was done by numerous people. We can tell that by the changes in writing, the changes in artistic style uh, of of the uh, lettering and the illustrations. Um, It has things like decorated initials, and there are, and I don't think you can see them really here, uh, except maybe in the key row page. I wish I had a better reproduction of that, but it is, Book of Kells is not in great shape. Uh, it's actually in m- uh, multiple pieces, or it was when it was found. Uh, and so, and so, it's the Lindisfarne Gospels. Even though they're about a hundred years older, are actually better preserved. Um, but there are numerous little, very lively human and animal figures in the Book of Kells. There are. Uh, Mermen <laughs> and all sorts of other like uh, mytho- mythological characters as well, and it very much as you can kind of see here with Jesus, it takes on the character of the people it's being written for. So when it talks about the temple in Jerusalem, we would see a picture of. Of Irish chapels in the city, rather than what we would think the temple in Jerusalem actually looks like mm. we 're going to jump forward a few hundred years. This is very uh, very typical art of the time period. meanwhile the the churches the chapels. Uh, all over the British Isles, still have a fairly Roman look to them. Uh, Small windows, um, and and rather, uh, some are more impressive than others. We don't have a lot left except small churches from this time period. The great cathedrals were by and large, and the abbeys, if they were rebuilt um, over time uh, are mostly of another type of architecture when we are about to get into. in France uh, in uh, around 1137 there was an abbot. Uh, at the Abbey of Saint Denis uh, called Abbot Sujet. Uh, it's not sugar, it's Sujet. <laughs> uh, and and he was he was very close to the king of the period, of that time period and he thought the abbey needed some refreshing. Uh, they had a lot of um, a lot of relics coming in uh, because of conquests and the like and and so he decided he was going to redesign the church and this redesign affected pretty much all churches from that period of time all the way through the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and into modern times. That style was called Gothic, Gothic architecture. He wanted to do something different. The, um, uh, from, uh, the churches that had existed before this the basilica types and others of similar look uh, tended to be very dark inside, very gloomy. And it was not a bad design. It held together, uh, but the walls were, were very thick. Uh, they, were, they were that way to hold up a very massive structure typically. But it was, not, it was not an impressive thing to be in. And, and the Abbot Sujet thought, we're, this place, you know, we, we are about the gospel. We are about the, the light of God. We need light. His words were, the dull mind rises to truth through that which is material. And then seeing this, uh, and then seeing this light is resurrected from its former submersion. And so he decided instead of this very dark space, he would design spaces that were filled, to the brim with light in uh, uh, in the book uh, the gothic enterprise which is fantastic uh, it's a great little overview uh, and this is not Saint-Denis. this is another uh, uh, this is another church in france it's in paris um Uh, But we read, All of the features we associate with Gothic architecture, pointed arches, flying buttresses, ribbed vaults, soaring ceilings, stained glass windows, pinnacles, and turrets, were developed in the service of the desire to flood the interior space with as much light as possible. The interiors of Romanesque Great churches are characteristically somber. As originally built, they were dimly lit, and it is not unusual to discover areas of the interior that are barely touched by light. Moreover, the walls are ponderous, solid, and somber. In dramatic contrast to this style, the walls of Gothic cathedrals appear almost porous, light permeates the interior and merges with every aspect of it, as though no segment of inner space should be allowed to remain in darkness, undefined by light. So we're going to look at uh, a few features of the Gothic cathedral. We're going to look at a few You'll notice from this picture, and while the labyrinth on the floor is uh, is the same as the one in Chartres uh, Cathedral in France, I, uh, which is where that pattern originates, I don't think it. This is from that cathedral, um, uh, but still. As you can see, the light flooding over the floor, uh, it creates this just abundance of color within the space. Go back to the interior in a moment. This, I took this at Westminster Abbey. (laughs) Um, But this... Uh, shows a lot of the outside. You start seeing the arches. The arches come to a point, whereas before they were curved. That's very much. Uh, that's very much by design. Functionally, that 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 uh, points weight downward, whereas a traditional Roman style arch would move the weight of the building outward. And so that's really good if you have very thick walls. But with with the huge windows taking up so much space in these Gothic churches, suddenly you don't have these uh, thick walls everywhere. You have mostly windows. And so you need that weight to go somewhere else. And so the weight goes downward. You still need support for the walls, so you have what are called flying buttresses. They come out from the church. They go down from the, from the roof of the church outward uh, to provide that extra support out there. A few early attempts at Gothic architecture failed and crumbled because these have not been uh, created yet, <laughs> you can see those clearly as support for this. This is the side entrance. This is the north-facing uh, entrance to Westminster Abbey. Where you see the buttresses really supporting the church and That's a very nice rose window. The circular windows that you see in churches are called rose windows. Oftentimes, there's one at the very front of the church. Westminster Abbey does not have that. Uh, It instead has uh, one on each side of what we talked about before, the transept. Uh, We still have a cross shape going on in the church building, and and that rose uh, window is above the entrances uh, of those transepts. Now, a lot of the formation is really the same uh, as what we saw before in the basilica what we have different is the experience. So so you walk in the front doors. There are three front doors typically to symbolize the Trinity. These things are full of symbolic meaning. And we always have three front doors unless some architectural change has taken place. So we walk in the front doors, and we're in the narthex. The narthex is still very dark. It doesn't have a lot of light, typically. Uh, Still small windows. But you move from the darkness into the light as you step into the nave, the main center section of the church. You're in the nave, and what you will see above Above you are these gothic arches. And you feel like you might be in an overturned boat. Because the church is seen as an ark. The, uh, it is the ark uh uh that we have that we have gone into, that we have become part of uh as as the vehicle of our salvation. And and so the this this boat imagery, this ark imagery, not only serves the function of stabilizing the building, but but we're seeing it as as having theological meaning as as reminding us that the that the church is the ship. Uh, by which we are saved from the destruction of the world, from the effects of sin. We still have in the middle, we still have this cross section, which is making a, a cross of the building itself. And then we have... We have the choir now in in smaller buildings, uh, and a Gothic Revival structures. The choir may be various places. Uh, if uh, if you go to some of the Catholic churches in town here, sometimes the choir will uh, will be situated above the congregation, up in a balcony or whatever. But traditionally, with with cathedrals. Um, yeah, uh, it is towards the front of the church, and there may be a partition here. Uh, Westminster Abbey definitely has this uh, partition. It's called a screen. Uh, it's not. A sp- it's it's not wire. <laughs> it is uh, it is typically either wood or it is masonry, like the rest of the building, that it separates off the area. Where the congregation is sitting or standing, originally standing from from the area that is regarded as holy, that is stepping into heaven uh, in in a sense, and so uh, and so that's where the choir spelling weird spelling. But that's the way that part of the building is spelled. I don't know, <laughs> uh, but it is for the actual choir members where they are sitting and singing. Um, and usually up here, you will have uh, have the pulpits and lecterns uh, right between where the uh, where the congregation is. And where the choir is, and you'll have the altar all the way back here in the apse. That's the rounded part at the back of the sanctuary. Behind, uh, behind the uh, the apse, in the hallway, would would typically be the that hallway would be the ambulatory. And there might be little side chapels back there uh, called chavets. These chevets might have relics. If a, if a cathedral were lucky enough to have relics, most of them had you know, at least a few bones at this point in time, that's where those relics would be and, and so people could go have private prayer time in those small little chapels at the back of, uh, at the very back, well, very front, technically, I guess. Oh. On that very far end of the church. <laughs> so let's look at this in a little bit of practice. We're going to go to Canterbury Cathedral, which is... Um, which is about 100 years older than Westminster Abbey's current building. Now, both of these had had buildings before. Most, most of the cathedrals that we have in England and, um, and all over the British Isles today, most of them have buildings before their current building. Fire was a huge problem. Most of them experienced at least one or two fires in their history before their current buildings were built. And Canterbury is no, uh, no different. So, what we have now is from the 12th century. So, the 1100s, so not that far after, just a few decades after Abbot Sujet did his little renovation of San. Denis, uh, we have the rebuilding of, of Canterbury Cathedral as it is today, and what do we see in the interior, we walk in and, you know, light coming from the windows, unfortunately we've got some interior lights as well, uh, uh, but those did not exist back then, um, and and it is an overwhelming space. These cathedrals are very tall and they point upward. Uh, Of course, we have that boat formation, we have the function of, of the dispersing of the weight, but it also just points you upward. When you walk in, you naturally want to look Upward. you are pointed. You are pointed to the heavens by the actual construction of the architecture. So this, uh, that one part, and imagine walking into that space from a you know much darker narthex right inside the front door. You, you walk through that second set of doors into the main space and it is meant to overwhelm you. This is looking at the choir so this is uh, looking from the screen to, to the choir space I believe uh, and notice the choir faces each other and we will have a lot of in the music calls back and forth. Much as we do spoken today in our in our worship. Uh, uh, We have you know calls and responses, but it's sung in this context. And again, the space is just flooded with light. Also what the what the architecture is doing by its design, which is particularly important in the centuries and centuries and centuries before microphones, is the sound carries. The sound carries through the building and resonates. So it has this heavenly quality. At the same time, you can hear someone speaking uh, you know, from one part of the building to another. So, so sound design is also part of its functionality. Now, one other thing you'll see, if you are in in Europe and you go to a cathedral space with one of these. This is a cloister. Uh, And if the building has one of these, it was probably originally an abbey. Uh, uh, During the Reformation, there was a uh, dissolution of the monasteries, as they call it. Uh, King Henry VIII decided the monasteries were very wealthy and full of corruption and Uh, and they were dangerous to him, and so they were dangerous, and he dissolved all the monasteries. A few of the churches that had monasteries, though, still have these cloisters, and the cloisters were symbolic as well as functional for keeping the outside world, the, the world of society, away from the world of the monks, and the nuns for, uh, uh, for, for those that, uh, that were for the uh, female religious. And so you will still see cloisters usually in a quad like this around, uh, this is Salisbury Cathedral. You'll also see it in Westminster Abbey. Uh, they have the cloister. And of course it gradually became a feature of uh, certain colleges and universities as well. I was at Magdalen College in Oxford, and they have a very, very nice cloister. <laughs> um, uh, and cloisters are just, they are sometimes covered art, uh, just covered walkways. Sometimes they have full windows and everything. Uh, in the early Harry Potter films, you uh, you will see... Cloisters used at Hogwarts, uh, that was actually filmed at Durham Cathedral <laughs> in England. So, uh, so Hogwarts uh, uh, part of it is one of the largest cathedrals in England, um, and so uh, and so that is one way uh, without reading any history on the church that you can tell it was probably part of a Benedictine Abbey during, uh, during the Middle Ages, before the Reformation. So, what else do I have for you? All right, let's wrap it up. I always put this in the slides, but I don't always remember to actually get to it. But these uh, today, these are some particularly uh, good and helpful books, uh, especially today. How the Irish saved civilization and the Gothic enterprise uh, were really um, uh, important in my understanding of how how the abbeys uh, during during the early Middle Ages uh, how they came to be. Uh, producers of these uh, illuminated manuscripts, um, and and so much of the work they did that preserved the writing uh, from across the empire in a time when most lay people were were fairly illiterate. Another thing that the cathedrals did before I forget. The stained glass windows, not just for conveying that uh, colorful light into the building. We know, obviously, that stained glass windows typically have pictures in them. Those pictures are Bible scenes uh, more often than, that, than not. And in a time when, when the lay people, by and large, could not read, and when most of the church service was in Latin, there needed to be some other way of, of getting some knowledge of Bible stories into, uh, into people's base of knowledge. And so these huge illustrated windows depicting uh, scenes of the Bible, pictures of the saints of the past, uh, uh, stories of, of uh, Jesus, Mary, the apostles, these, these were key to, to getting the laity some knowledge of the Bible's story. Uh, and some of these uh, are also things that I've continued to use. Again, the, uh, the line companion to Christian art is amazing. Uh, questions? Yes, sir. First, um can you go back to the uh, book of Calus, which I've heard of and I'm not very familiar with, but I, I noticed that underneath the Jesus or in the Jesus figure, just to the right and left below, were four other figures. What, what were those? Can you uh, can The you four know? other figures. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I'm suspecting that those are the the four evangelists, the the gospel writers. That uh, that happens, uh, that happens a lot. If uh, if you remember these the ceiling of the uh, well the the uh, Christ triumphant picture from the church in Rome last time, it had the four symbols of the gospel writers. Uh, and so some, sometimes they are symbolically depicted. Sometimes they are actually depicted as, as the people, as the gospel writers. John. How did the, uh, the continuity of features, like you were mentioning in that one earlier, the red and the blue in the Celtic art, how did that follow from Roman art? Uh, did, did they have the yeah, yeah. The um, there there was there was a decent bit of travel between the continent and and the British Isles, even even though it takes on a different flavor, um, especially by the time you get to the point where the Lindisfarne Gospels and the Book of Kells are made, we're looking at Benedictine Christianity. There was, uh, there was some Christian establishment from, from Ireland into, into uh, England and Scotland that, that was fairly disconnected from what was happening on the continent. Uh, uh, it was a few steps removed ev- ev- evangel- uh, uh, evangelism-wise. But, but at this point, there had been a synod at, uh, at Whitby Abbey. And they had decided, well, are we going to go with this Celtic pattern of the way of doing things? Or are we going to do it more in the way of the Benedictine monks all across Europe? And they decided we're going to go with the Benedictines. We're going to follow in that order, and so a lot of the practices and a lot of the symbolism, uh, if it hadn't already, began to cross over. Rob. Another question. I noticed in that Gothic cathedral design photo, the, the compass was a, a, was shown. Yes. Top east west towards south obviously are symbolic and do most all cathedrals follow that correct? Yes yes unless the landscape just makes it impossible okay, for for that to happen other than that uh, that's something that is similar between east and west uh, and uh, and so yeah most uh, most will face east and so most most of the time the people are worshipping Towards the east, and the uh, uh, the priest at the altar will even uh, bless the elements facing east rather than facing the people. Uh, that that changes really only within the last uh, century or two. Does that have to do- where the light was coming from, with the sun rising in the morning? The sun rising in the east, uh, uh, Jesus coming with the sun, or, or, or whatnot. Um, and, and so we are, uh, uh, by facing east, we are looking towards the second coming of Christ. Anything else? All right. Well, thank you guys so much, and uh, we'll see you next week.